Welcome to the Deep in Scripture podcast. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host. This podcast is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. And we have nearly six years of Deep in Scripture programs under our belt, but we're introducing a new series of programs focused on hard scriptures. In each episode, I'll generally interview a member of the Coming Home Network International about some scripture text that they consider or would have considered hard or difficult to understand given the specific Christian tradition that they came from. And we'll then discuss how their journeys of faith in Jesus Christ brought them to a deeper understanding of that text and of their faith. Now this week, however, I'm joining you alone. What I'd like to do is to give you a few more examples of what we mean by hard verses or or stormy verses. I explained last week on the program that back when I was a Protestant minister, uh, I could divide scriptures up into three different types, those that were clear, those that were cloudy, and others that were stormy. And those that were clear were verses that fit easily within my theology. I did not believe that they needed any further explanation. But there were verses that I considered cloudy. They didn't fit easily within my particular tradition, but once I had an explanation from someone that I trusted or that I had come up with through my own studies, then I could make that verse fit comfortably within my tradition. They may still remain cloudy, but I assumed that my explanation cleared, cleared the sky a bit. But then there were always verses that I considered stormy. These were verses that even if I had an explanation, I was never comfortable that I could easily explain them, particularly to my congregation. So generally, I wouldn't preach or teach on those verses. I left them up there on the shelf and avoided them. And there are some parts of Scripture that in the 10 years that I was a pastor and the 30 years that I was in ministry, uh, I never preached on, I never taught on, I avoided, I never had an easy explanation. They were hard verses for me. This week, what I'd like to do, out of my own morning devotions, I came across a couple of verses that were hard as I looked to my own background, and I thought I'd take a little time this week between the regular programs and talk a little bit more about hard verses. Before we move on, though, uh, I'd just like to remind you that you can find out more information about this program and to access past episodes by visiting deepinscripture.com. And also, if you'd like to submit a question or other feedback, you can do so via the website by sending an email to questions at deepinscripture.com or by finding us on Facebook or Twitter. Now, as I mentioned this week in one of my morning devotions, I happened to come across some scriptures that as I was contemplating this program, I realized, boy, these were hard verses or at least seemed hard for me when I was a Protestant minister. I had explanations But that's what I'd like to examine in a little time today on Deep in Scripture. Now, the way I've been doing devotions for many years is uh, it's a bit like the Liturgy of the Hours, but I do my own version from from my Bible. I have a ribbon in the Psalms and a ribbon in 
in an Old Testament book, a ribbon in a New Testament epistle, and a ribbon in the gospel. And every morning, I'll just pick up where I left off the day before and read a couple psalms, read where I left off in my Old Testament reading, read where I left off the day before in my epistle, and, and the same thing with the gospel. And so the the places in the Old and the New Testament where I happen to be are not seasonal like you would find in the liturgy, liturgy of the hours. They just happen to be uh, dependent on how far I felt reading in each book each morning as I was prayerfully reading through the scriptures. I guess you would call it Lexio Divina. But this particular morning, I happened to be in Genesis chapter 34. And the verse that, well, I'll begin with that summarizes that chapter is Genesis 34, beginning with verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? Now, there's a big history behind this text, which makes it difficult to explain, especially as a pastor to a congregation, why is this story in the Bible? What is it teaching us? Is it teaching us some kind of ret retribution, some justification for morality? Let me give you the background. In a summary, a quick summary, what had happened is that Jacob, after he had had his visit with his brother Esau in chapter 33 of Genesis, had traveled with his large family into the land of Cana and had settled safely in the city of Shechem. And he camped there, got some land, and was living next to the inhabitants of Shechem. While they were there, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, went to visit some of the women of the land. And while she was traveling around, the son of the prince, and his name was Shechem, saw her was infatuated by her, and Scripture says he seized her and lay with her and humbled her. Later, the news traveled, and Jacob and his sons eventually heard of this and, of course, were shocked. Then Shechem spoke to his father, and they went to Jacob, and basically Shechem was begging for Jacob's permission to marry Dinah. Because of what he had done, he wanted to marry her, loved her, and said he would do anything to win her hand. And he was backed up in that plea by his father, the prince, and the other men of that community. And then the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and said, now wait a second, we can't do this thing. We can't give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. So they said, only on this condition will we consent to you that you will become as we are, and every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves. 
Well, the prince and the men decided, let's do this. All right. Because they were saying to themselves, if we do this, then their land and their wives and their daughters will be ours. So there were some motives there. So they agreed to be circumcised so that Shechem could marry Dinah. Now, I wonder if they knew what they were getting themselves into. Kind of reminds me of an old cartoon I once saw, one of the old Far Side cartoons, where a dog is, is, has his head sticking out a window as a car is going down the road, and the dog is speaking to his friend dog next door, saying, hey, they're taking me to get tutored. And he didn't realize what he was in for. Well, maybe the men of Shechem didn't realize what they were in for because what happened, Scripture tells us, is that three days later, when all the men were naturally sore, and obviously they couldn't stand, they couldn't fight, they couldn't ride their camels, at that point, the sons of Jacob, particularly Simeon and Levi, went in with swords and killed all the men of the town took all the wives, took all the daughters, took all the property, took it to themselves. And that's where we have this scripture text where Jacob is saying, why have you done this? You brought trouble on me by making me odious to the inhabitants of this land. But they answered, wait, should he treat our sister as a harlot? Now, how do you explain why this long story is in scripture? Now, some say, well, it's just there. It's just a story. And then they move on. Well, is that the easy way to deal with hard stories? If you don't have a good answer, you just say, well, it just happens to be there. It means nothing to us. Let's leave it, leave it alone. Because in the story, we have Jacob. He doesn't seem to be that concerned about the fact that his sons killed all the men of that community. He seems to only be concerned about the trouble they've made for him. On the other token, Simeon and Levi seem perfectly justified to kill all the men of the community because one man in that community raped their sister. Is this a story teaching Christian morality, Christian ethics? Is it a balanced understanding of retribution? I can almost guarantee from some preachers I've heard over the years that there are probably some fundamentalists that might use this story to justify radical responses to times that they have been hurt, justifying retribution. Why is this passage in Scripture? Well, as I continued my devotions that morning, Turned out that the next passage I was to read was in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. And in this passage, I found myself reading some scripture portions that I remember being a bit difficult as a pastor. Paul wrote in uh, verse 2, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. Now, first of all, I remember as a minister being unclear how to, how to understand what he meant by traditions. Was it the written word he was passing along 
or the oral teaching, the gospel that he passed along. That seems to be the context. In other words, Paul had taught them through preaching the gospel, and they were holding on to that, maintaining it, even as he had delivered it to them, because this is long before the New Testament documents, of course, were written. But in verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her wear a veil. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a woman ought to have a veil on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God without her head, without with her head uncovered. Does not nature itself teach you that for a man to wear long hair is just degrading to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her pride, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is disposed to be contentious, we recognize no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, I read that whole section because the question is, all right, how does what Paul wrote apply to our lives today? Now, when he was writing, he said that if anyone is disposed to be contentious, in other words, if anybody listening doesn't agree, then he says we recognize no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So what do you think? Should we, since it's in infallible inspired scripture, as Paul will say later, that all Scripture is inspired of God, profitable for teaching. Therefore, should we take Paul's word as normative for our lives today? Should women still always have their heads covered when they pray? Should us men make sure we've got our hair cut short? That's what Paul's saying here. Now, I remember I had an answer for that. And the, the knee-jerk re-answer was, well, he's talking about something that's cultural in the first century, doesn't apply anymore, and then we'd move on. However, I do know women in a variety of churches that still wear veils. Of course, you look to the Middle East, and you see entire cultures where women are still required to wear veils, not just when they pray, but in their whole lives in public. They can't be seen without a veil. However, I know some more traditional Christian traditions in America, where women are required to wear certain kinds of hairdress, men and women are required to wear certain kinds of uniforms, uh, men have certain kinds of beards, the hair's cut a certain length. So how do we understand this verse? Now think about it. If you think about the different groups in America alone that have different requirements for clothing, hairstyle, hair coverings, 
But all these groups love Jesus Christ, and all these groups honor the scriptures as the, the bedrock, the foundation for their faith, or as another verse would say, the pillar and foundation of truth. But we'll look at that in a moment, because I want to read another section down in this 11th chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, because my devotions hadn't quit yet. And so Paul goes on to say, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you assemble as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partially believe it. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So there are divisions, and there were divisions in the church in Corinth at the time that Paul was writing. We know earlier in, in the book, Paul talks about those that congregate and see themselves under the leadership of different different people. Some say, I belong to Cephas. Some, I belong to Paul. Others are saying, I belong to Apollos. Others are saying, I belong to Christ. And so in the church are already divisions. How do we prevent these divisions? Well, the Lord, Paul is saying in, in verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, as I was reflecting on that, in the morning, it, it helped me appreciate the fact that though it may not have been the perfect will of our Heavenly Father, that over the centuries He has allowed there to be divisions in His church. And the reasons for those divisions are so that by grace, when we see the divisions, we see the different ways that people interpret Scripture and then divide themselves from other Christians based on their interpretations. When grace allows us to see the divisions, it draws us back to want a genuine unity. We recognize the danger of these divisions that are particularly uh, caused by the uh, contradictory interpretations of Scripture. When we have one verse that is difficult for one group of Christians to understand, whereas that verse is easier for another, depending on how their traditions interpret Scripture. What about that old story about Dinah? Is it all right in terms of retribution? Who decides what is fair and just retribution for a sin, for a crime? Is it up to each of us individually? excuse me, individually, or if we're particularly insulted, does that justify reaching out in retribution to someone? Or in the New Testament, we see what Paul says, and therefore that's what he means for today. And so therefore, I believe that's the way my family or my church ought to operate. When in fact, there are Christians around that disagree. How do we know how to interpret Scripture correctly, especially when a particular passage is difficult. Well, that reminded me of another Scripture, which was an, a, a very important verse in my own journey of faith. 
and it comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3. When Paul, usually Paul, depends on face-to-face communication, the oral preaching, the proclamation of the gospel. That was a normal way that the truth of the faith was conveyed since the beginning. But there, of course, were times when Paul could not get to a place to deal with a problem. Usually it was because he was in chains. So he would write a letter. And this was the case in 1 Timothy because he says in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, listen again to those verses. Paul assumes that the gathering of Christians do not automatically know how to behave in the household of God. It isn't up to their individual interpretation or their democratic vote in their little gathering to decide how to deal with retribution or how to deal with customs like whether women should wear hairnets or not. It's not just up to an individual church to decide for itself. Paul recognizes that he, as an apostolic bishop, has a responsibility given to him by Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit to help that gathering of Christians understand how to interpret that which they have received. And we know from the reading of especially 2 Timothy that these Christians recognize that the Hebrew Scriptures, which we now call the Old Testament Scriptures, were the Scriptures for them. And so they were called now as new Christians— to understand how to interpret and to apply the teachings of the Old Testament. And so you can imagine that in those early days of the church, they were dealing with how do you understand and apply the teaching in a story like that way back in Genesis with the story of Dinah. What do you do with that? How do you live it out? And Paul was saying it isn't up to you individually or as a group to democratically decide the meaning of that text or to go with your gut level feeling that there is a a hierarchy in the church that God has given, guided by the Spirit, to make sure that we understand how to interpret Scripture and to live it out. Because I didn't finish reading that that passage in 1 Timothy, because Paul said, if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. It isn't the Bible alone that is a pillar and bulwark of the truth, nor is it any individual Christian, even though by baptism we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But rather, it is the church that our Lord established in his apostles with the leadership of Peter that has been given the Holy Spirit to make sure that, and here we are 21 centuries later, that we make sure that we interpret Scripture correctly. Because sometimes the the Scripture text might seem to call us to do something very radical very unloving, unfair, unjust, unless we understand and see it within 
the entire context of the rule of faith guided by the very teacher who gave us the Bible, and that's the church. Well, thank you for joining us on this short episode of Deep in Scripture. I just wanted to take a little more time to give you an example of what we mean by difficult scriptures, because in fact, almost any verse of scripture can be a hard verse for somebody, depending on the tradition they come from, the background, the situation, maybe the pressures in their life. People can take a scripture to mean a great variety of things. So how do we make sure we interpret it correctly? That's one of the beautiful reasons that our Lord gave us the church. So just a reminder that we want you to, we'd like to hear from you. You can email us at questions at chnetwork.org, or you can leave us a voicemail, questions or comments by clicking the button at the deepinscripture.com page. You'll see it if you go to the website. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. And again, a reminder, Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International, a network of Christian men and women who, in their walk with Christ, found themselves drawn to embrace the Catholic Church. Wherever you may be on your own Christian journey, we invite you to walk, learn, and pray with us. So please visit www.chnetwork.org to connect with us. So thank you for listening to this episode of Deep in Scripture. And next time we'll be talking with Pat Madrid, author and radio talk show host. We'll be talking about the verses that he considered hard verses. God bless you. See you next week.